Hello and welcome to Rising with the Tide podcast. I'm Skander, as usual, joined by Jamie. Hello. <laughs> this is episode around 50. Gotta be around that. I can't. I don't keep track of the exact guess 53. number. 53. Okay, I'll guess 55. Okay. And then when I edit it, we'll see and whoever wins, uh, I don't know. You just get me a beer when you come visit me, Jamie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, today, we're joined by Dr. Patricia uh, Castillo-Briseno, professor at the Universidad Laica Eloy Alfaro de Manabí in Ecuador. She's a board member of the OWSD and a co-founder of Cientificas Ecuador as well. Pat, thank you so much for joining us. How welcome, are you doing? Welcome. Hi, thank you very much. Hi, Skander, Jamie. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. No worries. Are you joining us from Ecuador then, directly? Yes. Actually, I am in Manta, that is a city in the coast part of the Ecuador. Mm. Just mm. near to the sea. Not have a sea view, but near. <laughs> All right. Um, so we'd like to start with a little bit about you know, our researcher, our guest, uh, to, to begin with, kind of maybe you could trace a little bit for us your your path to where you are today, how you got interested in the topics that you currently research and work in, and uh, what led you here, and, and also what it is that you do today. Yeah, well, I think it's been uh, a path that is going across different ecosystems. I originally from Quito, that is a city in the highlands, is the capital of Ecuador, but it's in the highlands. We're talking about 3,000 meters uh, over the level oh. of the sea. Yeah, those kind of highness <laughs> and low oxygen, too. <laughs> wow, yeah. And, yeah, you, you can, well, when you're living there, you didn't notice that. But now that I'm living yeah. in the coast to the sea level and coming back, I'm really feeling that is the low oxygen, <laughs> just like really hard to just walk and and walk and talk is even harder. Yeah. So, yeah. I remember hiking Volcan Baru in, in Panama oh. and that was like three point three maybe or something thousand meters. And my God, I, I could really feel like the lack of air, you know, it's like <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. But I get I get we we're cre we're creatures of habit, I guess, all of us, so we get used to it. Yeah, for some things of work, we went to, for my mom, actually, we came to the coast, and then I was more close to the ocean. And that was, for me, a time of the breaking point of the change. I always have liked, like, the nature and being in the mountains and the rivers and so on. And the ocean, for me, was more more a holiday thing. Mm -hmm. But then when we came to live here, for me, it was totally, I mean, blowing mind because it was suddenly to see there is a lot of life under the sea. Uh, at that point, Manta uh, was not so urban as it is now. So we have a lot of more organisms, um, how do you say, olivellas, that is kind of shells, some worms, like blue, green, mm. and so really, really nice ones. And then I decided I really want to, to know more about it, to understand how the ocean works, uh, suddenly knowing like here we have the tides, I don't know there, but here the tides are changing about each six hours. So we have two high and two low tides. Mm -hmm. And there is obviously changing about one hour by day. So this each day is one hour more for that same point. Um, and understanding that was like, wow, yeah. this is like, the ocean is not like, you can see like today was at 10 a.m., nice, calm, and at some mm -hmm. tide, 
and tomorrow is going to be like that. It's always changing. Mm -hmm. And then go to the university and see like, okay, I really was fascinated. Um, when I was studying, they have a lot of mangroves. So that was mm -hmm. also another thing like this nearby the, the river and how the river and to the sea and they have the story. And we have here a fish that is named the, how you say the fat sleeper is the common name. Here we call it chami and the local people. And it's like mm -hmm. very traditional. Um, it's common in, in the Spring areas and the, for the people, they make traditional food dishes from that. Mm -hmm. But the particular of this one is able to stay three days out of the water and can bike and it's fun. <laughs> and yeah, so I was a Highland girl, like having a fish that is able to live mm. three days out of the water. It was like, wow, <laughs> how so they can do that? <laughs> yeah. Wait, so, so you said you had mangroves near the university? Yes, actually, when I made it here, no. But where I made my studies at the university, yes. It is actually a really... Wow. Actually, the university has an area, Sagna, that is part of the mangrove. So you oh, just... Wow. 200 meters and you're inside the mangrove course, at least oh. in my time when I was studying. That's amazing. Uh, all we had was ducks in Lancaster, <laughs> Jamie and I. <laughs> mangroves all right so that counts as marine life i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> so yeah sorry uh, go really, ahead. Really, no no that is like it's really nice ecosystems and also it's very muddy in that area the kind of mangroves that you have a lot of the soil and the sediment and it was also like when you can see that the nature is beyond your physical strain even because you're having the mouth just until your knees and then just in your waist and you're just like bent over the neck <laughs> with the model and just trying to advance and you see you know that um, the heron birds just going on your side just walking like super normal super cool and you're just like getting down and down in the mouth and it was also a kind of way of understanding that you need to respect nature and the kind of mm. really amazing adaptation they have how they are really fit for that kind of really strange and harsh ecosystems um yeah basically that was for me the changing from the highlands into the sea and a bit more in my current things of going more on the health of animals it was uh, Another point, I had the opportunity to be living about half a year in Galapagos. I was working with marine oh, wow. iguanas. Yeah. You know, and they were also like fascinating animals. It's supposed to be the only lizard that is able to dive. They can be 30 mm. meters underwater to eat. Like, you can have your salad yeah. 30 meters underwater while diving. And, and the other thing is like they are still, this is kind of from endemic animals in Galapagos, I mean, endemic, like they are only there. Uh, these are particularly strong compared with other animals that are more vulnerable. Still under El Nino, here we have a really strong influence of El Nino event. So they were really hitting hard for them. So that was in a study, the, the work I was doing at Voluntarin there was to monitor how was the state of health of these animals after some years of an event that killed about 70% of their population. Mm. So the idea was to understand which were the main causes, but also how was the population recovering from that? Because actually they were pretty well 
after three years or something. So uh, it was nice. We were checking basically environmental parameters like temperature in the air and the water, that they're the main factors that are affected by El Nino. And it was fine. I could see like the, in my case with my parameters, it was more like they need like not, the problem is not only the higher temperatures, but that they were sustained for several months. So it's like they mm -hmm. were able to mm -hmm. cope with two or three months of heat waves, but six months were too much. And then they start to die, and, and basically it was a decline of food that was uh, translated in a decline of the population. But what I was missing is like, I really want to know what was happening in the animal. I mean, it was like what was happening mm. out in the environment, but not in the animal. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, I, that is how I found that I really need to go on a specialization and learn more in the cellular and molecular biology and the physiology of the animals to understand. And when I wrote it in, in Europe, and I have been coming back from 2016, uh, I'm back here in Ecuador, uh, after living in, in Spain and in France mainly, and coming back to test now with information and understanding better the physiology of animals, now I'm working on check how ocean acidification, that now is um, mm. a factor related to climate change, how is that affecting the health of the local animals? Because actually mm. we... I mean, but this is expected and it's estimated to be an important uh, factor here in Ecuador. We are in the scenario of high risk mm -hmm. for ocean acidification, but there is not so many studies. So that was like, okay, now we have to, to go on that. El Niño it is still very relevant, but that we have to take in consideration also the, the bigger picture climate change. And could I ask sort of how did you get, how did you access the data of the health states of the iguanas? Because it seems like that might be quite a challenge if you have to get up close, you know, rather than just testing the sort of temperature and acidity of the water, it seems like more of a challenge maybe. Well, here I'm working with iguanas. One of the things I move subjects from Galapagos animals from other animals is that they have a lot of environmental restrictions thinking mm. and they are endemic and it's kind of mm. very unique. So when we were testing that related to El Nino in the animal, the health, what we were checking was basically the conditions and example, um, clinical conditions. So we have a kind of a, a matrix of indicators that saying like, okay, if you can see an example, uh, some Evidence of inanition, or they are not having enough food, that could be an indicator that you can see some of the bones and the part of the mm. posterior uh, limbs, which normally are not. They are kind of fatty lizards. <laughs> you can see yeah. pictures of them, they are really fatty. So if you can see some bones in particular, or the vertebrates of some of the other bones, these are your indicators. And if they are in perfect yeah. state, that should be stage five. If they are dead, that should be stage zero and they are in a scale. That is also what I wanted to check more on, on tests. I know that in Iwanas, they have been testing also some samples of blood, blood, sorry, for the accent. And they're checking on blood basically because it's kind of the, the less invasive you can do on the animals because you cannot just simply take them and sample tissues. Yeah. Uh, of course. <laughs> so here I'm working with animals that are more, working more with fish and with shrimp. That is my mother's the study for ocean acidification, and they are more amenable on the handling. Also, they are regulate environmental regulation, but less strong for 
limited than what we have for Galapagos. Mm. And here we can be behavior side, survival. You count cells on the samples of blood again. Uh, but then you can take samples also of tissues in these animals. Mm -hmm. Of course, taking of the bioethics restrictions and, and measures for that. Mm. I guess there's the cultural idea as well of like some of these bigger uh animals and 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 beings really are, are given a bit more like um not personhood but they're they're given more of a of a presence i guess uh than like fish would be so i guess does that kind of play a role as well in kind of what you are allowed to do what you aren't those like more cultural norms of what we view as a kind of i guess more lifeless in a way um well, not lifeless right. but i guess like less intelligent i guess species well there is yeah for sure there is all um, a discussion and debate ongoing on the fish intelligence uh, particularly from what i have seen in the information and when i have worked with fish i really thought that they are really intelligent animals but it's true that for most of people it is not so easy to connect and actually there is known that for humans it is easier to connect with beings that we saw more similar to us so if mm. something have an expression that we can <laughs> mm -hmm. realize or it's like as when you see some of the spiders that are kind of furry and people is looking like, oh so cute it's just a coincidence that is the kind of what, what we do we are social animals we recognize patterns everywhere yeah. even if there is no really i like iguanas though to be honest they yeah. are really nice. I mean, for me it was like when you saw the animals a lot, independently of which species they are, you can start to see the difference, even the, yeah. at the yeah. level of individuals. So for me, with iguanas, like everyone was like, yes, but they are black lizards, all similar. You can differentiate males from females and juveniles, but that's it. But at some point, since part of my work was going each month to see the population in a particular area, you start to see they have special characteristics and the eyes are different, <laughs> like, like we. Mm -hmm. You have the eyes, it's different, it's not the same for everyone. The tones of the color and even the, the way they respond or they behave. Mm. So it was a lot of respect working with these animals and with fish also. When I did my PhD, it was basically we were working with a fish that is the, the Gilhead Sebring. It's a fish that is used for aquaculture. And there is a lot of also in the culture where you say the how we see the animals depends a lot on how we use, we interact with animals. Normally, animals that are used for food tend to be less considered as individuals as other animals mm. that are like, company animals, dogs, and so on. And the thing like at the beginning, I must recognize that I was also, okay, this is a fish, I sample, I take some tissues, we use anesthetics to make the euthanasia and that kind of things that following the protocols. But my really empathetic point became that something I was sampling and I had to get the animal anesthetized and take some blood samples. Mm. And for that, you take a kind of wet napkin and put on the face of the animal and then take the sample. But when I was going to put the napkin, suddenly the fish that was just like turning the eye and looking at me, and at the point was like, um, oh. and yes, yeah, you feel like that is not the that changed everything for me. It was mm. like, okay, yes, it is like, yeah, it's not just you have to follow the protocols of bioethics, but there is also that, that other thing that you, by personal means, notice that it is yes, it's an animal that is conscious, 
Just as mm -hmm. Cynthia and Vin. And if you have to make research and use the animals because it is a bigger benefit and purpose for health, development of vaccines and so on, I mm. can agree and understand that it's relevant. But still that you really have to do when it is necessary, not yeah. just because, I mean, just to, to know, not just for curiosity, yeah. but to really better a bigger purpose. Mm. So here we work with shrimps. I could say that even for shrimps, um, you can start to see they behave different. Uh, I have part of the work we really? do is uh, developed by students. They are undergraduate students. And I have some experiments. It was a case in particular. This is an anecdotic thing. Uh, I have some shrimps. I take them from a larval juvenile stage for an experiment, a practice with live animals with the students. Then that the students became to be a kind of intern student in my lab for practice. And I normally, the animals that I use in the practice and they are not sacrificed, I take them alive and keep them just alive until the moment. The shrimps are not so long-lived animals. So when the students went there, they found again their animals from the practice. And they were like, my students were like really happy. You know, they had put even names to each shrimp. <laughs> and they were able to know which shrimp is each one. There were six animals. Really? And actually, I was not believing so much that they were able, but I test them, like putting, like, you know, checking on some marks mm. and verifying if that is true, they know who oh, is wow. who. And actually, they knew. That's true, they were able to identify, and it was mostly by behavior. And yes, because this is more active, and this other one is mm. not so much, and this one yeah. is interacting more with that other one. Okay, deserves an study in itself, mm. not done. Yet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, a path to, to pursue at some point. I guess a lot of uh, a lot of scientific uh, advancement begins as anecdote, anyways, or mm. anecdotal kind of happenings, and then just evolves like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just keep thinking of like going diving and just turning my head and just seeing an iguana paddling around 15 meters under <laughs> and how freaky that could be if you're not prepared to see an iguana under underwater um <laughs> so well yeah i have seen them by diving and that's actually really nice because they are it's like you see kind of a little godzilla just yeah. in the water <laughs> with their spines and eating so peaceful because they are also very they are shy, but most of the things I have seen with them when they are underwater is that they just ignore you. Mm. So you can see them and they are just not avoiding you, not approaching you, just doing their business. Yeah. It's a nice experience to see them. Yeah. So uh, this could be potentially a, a naive kind of question because I, I don't know much about this topic, but is it... Is there an inherent difficulty in studying the the I guess like medical and the physiological in in animals and biodiversity uh, compared to like studying that in humans? Just because I'm I'm just kind of I guess I'm guessing that different animals have very different structures, you know, body structures, obviously, but also like maybe the me mechanisms of their bodies function slightly differently and so i guess like understanding each of those that you work on if you switch species uh might be like really really difficult uh, as a researcher no yeah thank you i don't know if my i don't know question. if that makes yeah. sense yeah 
Yeah, 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 a lot of science, and this is super important. And actually, what we do before going on the experiments for going to measure the impact of ocean acidification, we always start with the first setting of parameters that we can use as health indicators. Because one of the things is like, yes, to a human, you can say like, do you feel pain? Um, how are you? Are you feeling that or so? But of course, with animals, no, for sure they are communicating, but we are not able to understand. Mm -hmm. So the idea is how we can so understand. Uh, one of the things, in example, with fish, what we use, in example, when we are testing um, the protocols to anesthetize the animals to make some tests, uh, one of the difficulties is because in humans, I don't know if you have been in a procedure, but not. But in mm -hmm. the movies, you can see, you know, that thing is like, I start on uh, anesthetizing you, and then I ask him for the regressive cones. So when people drop off the counting, you know the people is really fully anesthetized, they're unconscious, mm -hmm. have no reflex, and that's it. Yeah. In fish, that is not happening like that. So what we have to check in them, in example, is the movement of the perculum, that is the part that is covering the gills. Mm -hmm. So you can see if they are reducing the frequency. That is kind of the indicator of the breathing. Like when we are inspiring and exhaling, they are just like with the operculum. The other thing we saw in them is the reaction to contact. So sometimes they are vertical and just breathing. And, and nor normally, a fish, the most of them, if you took like really softly, like with a paintbrush, a small one, you mm. make a kind of, even sometimes, even you don't reach them and they are just getting away. But when they are getting sedated or anesthetized, they simply start not responding. Mm. Remember that they also don't have eyelids, they are just the eye, like always living awake. So basically, it's an indicator that they are sedated because they are not closing their eyes. And when they start to answer to that, you know that they are sedated and they are almost anesthetized, and then they lose the axis. When they lay on the side instead of on the vertical axis they normally have, you know that they are fully anesthetized, and you use the operculum movement to know they are still alive. So you are not losing them during mm -hmm. the procedure. However, that is not valid for fishes, and we have learned that like when you move to another species, that I mean is working for the most of them. But some other, and especially when we are talking about wild animals, what we saw is that the responses can be very different. So with some species, uh, you don't see the decrease, the I mean the progressional decrease on the move the movements of the perculum, but they just suddenly stop. And it's like they are just having the normal rate of movement and they stop. And when they stop, that means that there is over anesthetized and that you have to, to recover. The animal is like not a good indicator for that. And some right. animals also answer by not moving as a way of defense, as what we call the freezing. Right. So yeah. that becomes species dependent. Mm. Like really you have or like to see uh, the species. Opossums would play dead, I guess, and things like yes. that. Yes. Yes, yeah. and some fish also do that. Some really? <laughs> yes. But you're like, what happened? And then suddenly you saw them just <laughs> going <and laughs> Their eyes just turned yeah. to little X's and they're suddenly... <laughs> 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 uh, um, okay, so I guess do you, for some of the studies that you do, do you pair up with specialists on each kind of species? Because from what I've seen from your work, you seem to jump around different species 
like like you 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 study a variety of species like you said mm -hmm. and so do you kind of sometimes pair up for, with quite specific experts like biologists i guess of those species so that or or do you kind of like you said you do a kind of um uh was it not training but like you you come you get up to date kind of on on their uh, physiology um that depends in some cases yes in example uh during my postdoc i was working with a model of frog that is the the Sinopus, the, the african frog and in that case, the advantage was the people, it was a lot, when I was in a postdoc, that was a place where people was working with that frog as the main model. So they basically have set the, the protocols. Also, that was a kind of established experimental model and they were lab frogs, they were not white type. Uh, with other animals, and basically what we have found here in Ecuador is an example for shrimp, that is the Pacific wet shrimp. You have some information because this is a species that is really important for aquaculture. So there are several studies that you can have the protocols online and there is people working here on that. And an example, I'm getting support from people that is producing them. They are not researching them, but they are monitoring the animals because they produce. It. Mm. So checking on which indicators of health are relevant for the aquaculture sector and taking that as a, a reference for us. Still, there are some protocols that have not been established or developed for the species. So an example for the use of anesthesia. For several species here that are wild animals and have not been studied in laboratory, or basically have been collected for studies of biodiversity, but not for experiments. So there is kind of biological general information, ecological one, but not protocols of management. So in that cases, we have to develop our own protocols. If there is no specialist in that, is when we start testing doses, time of exposure, and also checking on the indicators. Uh, the one I say you of the animals, the fish, that were not just freezing and just stopping the purple movement, it was actually because there was no reference material, or not public, uh, no researches on that and no papers. So we start taking as reference the protocols from other fish and trying to make the more close phylogenetically, I mean, the closest species for what we have information and going in doses and exposure a little bit lower. So avoiding the risk to overdose. But still, there is always like, yes, for some things, it is not possible yet because there is not a protocol. So there is the both approach. If I have the specialist, great. And if not, we have to, to start and do it by ourselves with several try and error until we find the right protocol. I'd like to know sort of more about this process of ocean acidification and sort of, I guess, when when did the scientific communities first sort of become aware of this process and what, are the, what, what do they say are the sort of lead causes for this process as well? Yeah, well, uh, the thing with ocean acidification, I think, is particularly interesting because it has been kind of the, until 10 years ago, it was kind of a neglected topic on the field of climate change. So mm. Most of people was very focused on the changes of the level of the sea and, of course, of warming, that is kind of the, the most known for, for everyone. And there is an observatory in Hawaii, where is the first one that they have a really long-term series for the measurements of pH 
And that is when they start to detect that there was a, a fluctuation of the data of the values of pH, pH that were and the levels of CO2 that were changing over the time. I mean, the real uh, discovery in that is that they have enough data to show that we have the natural variability that we know, but the change we are doing is over that natural variability. And that was when it was demonstrated that there was a tendency on the rising levels of CO2, but also on the uh, levels of CO2 in the water and the reduction of the pH. It was also challenging because by the time, in example, I have been talking with colleagues here in Ecuador that work in oceanographic monitoring, and they told me that actually uh, they have been stopping measuring pH like 20 years ago. They were measuring that, but they were thinking like, this is not changing. We don't monitor anymore. Oh, no. Yeah, so that is like really unfortunate and sad because actually, yes, the fluctuations were really little. And in a general point of view, could seem that they are not changing. But mm -hmm. now we know they were changing. But you need a long time series to see that and see how it's fluctuating and how it's fluctuating now in the current time. So that is the thing. Like now they are also restarting to take the data and so on. But oceanographic monitoring is kind of expensive. And you could see that for most of developing countries, it is very complex for several reasons, not just only because it is expensive to go on a boat or to put or place a sensor for automatic measurement on the sea, but also to avoid to have this kind of uh, monitoring or the equipment to be stolen in the sea because there is not enough, uh, you know, the, the guardians or the police in the sea to check that equipment is still there. Mm -hmm. So this is a kind of mix of factors that make it really complex to, to keep that kind of data here, but people is really doing a, a really great effort to, to get that kind of data. Uh, one of the approaches is also to monitor from coastal areas that are more accessible. That is actually in the work we are doing is more in this approach that like working with laboratories that produce streams and also people that take or work with the water in the coastal area that is a bit easier to sample than an oceanographic or an open ocean. And the other thing is that is actually my more or my main work is to see how it could be affecting in our local species um, because from the data, may, the most of the data we have at the global level are from the what we call the global north. That is basically the rich countries that have really longer time of monitoring. The Hawaii Observatory that I told you about the CO2 and pH, mm -hmm. they are from the states. And there is also a lot of research in, in Europe and Canada in the States too. Uh, but the thing is like the, for the global south, there is less data. So it's like, as you can see the resolution where we say like in the global north, you have a point or a data about a point of information for about each two to six square kilometers, while for the global south will be about 160 kilometers. You have one point for that. So of course, it is a very low resolution to know what is really happening. The other thing is like, despite that, we have some models that show that for the equatorial area, there is a high risk of facing or refacing uh, ocean acidification conditions. And particularly in the case of Ecuador, 
it is high character risk and the potential vulnerability because we also are in an upwelling zone. So that upwelling means that we have the influence of the current of Humboldt. This is a marine and oceanic mm -hmm. current that's coming from the south. And it's basically characterized because it is rich in nutrients. That is very important and is highly one of the sources and reasons why we have so high biodiversity. But there are also waters that came from a deeper part of the ocean and they have naturally lower pH. Mm -hmm. So that is why it became a double risk because you have the natural lower pH. And on top of that, the ocean acidification for the CO2 in the context of climate change. And uh, with that situation, what happened with the CO2? Because that is the other thing that people say is okay, pH is lower, so what? The thing is, like, when you have that low pH, you have problems with carbonates and the marine species, they are a lot of species that have carbonates building their bodies. So the shell... The skeletons? The, yes, all the skeletons and also the, the exoskeletons with the mm. shells and crustaceans too, all the kind of, of the skeletons that are formed. Not only that, but also there are processes of physiological signaling, like a molecular level, that are affected by CO2. I mean, the CO2 is a very biological active compound. It's not only the, the effect on the chemistry, but also physiologically could have an effect. So an example, I can tell you that in some animals, it is used CO2 as a kind of anesthetic. That kind of biological effect all depends on the concentrations. Um, anyways, the thing is like when you have the pH, the carbonates get dissolved, and if they are more soluble, that means that on animals that have carbonates in their bodies, it begins to get dissolved if they are in contact. Basically, that is for bivalves, oysters, uh, mussels. And the other thing is for the animals that are building the skeletons and their shells, there is less carbonates available. It's like less material available to make the shells. So they became smaller. And in some cases, even they became, they, they can survive. Simply mm -hmm. to be even lower in some cases. And so this issue is the same as the problem of, um, what do you call it, calcification in corals, right? For coral reefs, yeah. it's the same thing? It is related, yes, it is the, let's say, the, the bleaching of the, the corals. It is related with warming and with ocean acidification. And yes, that is actually one of the, I mean, it's kind of the most embl more emblematic because corals also are very kind of charming yeah. animals. So yes, and they are very effective also for, they have the, the their skeletons are made from carbonates. So yes, they are losing that also mm -hmm. ocean acidification. But the good news is there are also some experiments. When you artificially uh, alkalinize the water or write the pH, they have been shown that for some species, they are able to recover their size. So they still have the capacity to recover if the conditions are turned back to a better levels of pH. So mm -hmm. that is the, the good news. They are affected, but there is hope. <laughs> yeah. See, I, yeah, I remember learning some crazy things i think maybe in one of the previous episodes that we did surrounding marine uh biology a little bit and it was uh for example the if i remember right corals are uh like you said they're they're animals but what i didn't know was that they were like 
animals that are made up of tiny, tiny little polyps or something. Is that what they're <laughs> called? Like thousands and thousands of polyps all together. And so technically they're not like one thing. They're a, mm. um, a giant like buildup of like limestone and polyps, which is, I, I yeah. anyways, <laughs> just a, a little thing I remembered like that, that, that made me absolutely like gasp i didn't know <laughs> no 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 it's totally true it's like it's basically what you call them this kind of colonies so okay. these are like several animals living in that mega building of carbonates so yeah and they're totally yeah. cute when you saw the the really amplification you can see all the tentacles and like that and how they eat yeah really cute ones I guess whilst we're on the uh, on the topic of coral and sort of how it reacts to um, processes like ocean acidification, I guess other than sort of the good of the animal itself, what because I think why is it sort of very important and why is it quite dangerous more broadly in an ecological sense uh, that uh, coral is affected negatively in this way? Because I think I think not a lot of people sort of know the role that. Um, I, organisms like coral play in the broader uh, ecology? Well, in the case of the corals, it is, well, several things. Um, the coral reefs, mangroves, sargassum, uh, the kelps, the kelp forests, are basically the, the ecosystems that are more productive and also they are higher spots of biodiversity. And actually, these are two factors that are connected. I mean, the productivity and the biodiversity, and that is something like we really have to, to see in that integrative and more broad perspective of human beings, because that means that uh, these are the areas. One thing is like they are producing a lot of oxygen, like most of the oxygen. Of course, Amazon people can be in disagreement with that, but basically it's Amazon's and the other ecosystems, the corals and mangroves, which are producing most of the oxygen we use, the animals that we use oxygen. And the other thing is like they are also sinks of the CO2 and also they are basically the ecosystems that are given support for most of the life and the sea. They act as places in what we call the nurseries. So there is a lot of small animals during the stages when they are babies and teenage animals. Marine animals are living around that, the mangroves and the coastal areas and the coral reefs. And without that part, they cannot arrive to later stages. That is one thing. Like, if you don't survive um, your childhood, of course, you cannot arrive to adulthood. The other thing is like not only because of the biodiversity, but there is a direct relation and dependence for food production and biodiversity. So it is not a coincidence that the most productive places in terms of aquaculture and fisheries are also correlate, uh, located in the same areas of the hottest spots of biodiversity. So that is like um, one of the key points. If we are not preserving the biodiversity, we are losing of sources of food. And actually one by, of each seven people in the world is directly dependent on food coming from the oceans and it's expected that this will be the double by 2015. So this mm. is basically like the why. I mean, it's not because corals are relevant and biodiversity and nice and the tourists, but actually we are depending on them for food. And the other thing is for protection, the mechanical protection. They make an example for, um, you know, the storms, the tsunamis, 
even for protection in the case of the rising of the level of the sea. The fact that we have coral reefs and mangroves especially in the coastal areas, they act as a barrier for protection so the waves don't hit so hard in the human or populated areas. So yeah, there's like essential for human survival all these ecosystems. Yeah, I would I would uh, strongly suggest if uh, if you're listening and you and you don't you haven't yet seen the really the very real impact that uh, mangroves have said like like Pat said uh, on on protecting shores and coastlines. Look up uh, right now on Google. Look up um, mangrove protection coast uh, experiment, and I think one of the first results you'll get. Will be this really really neat video of um of kind of like a miniature set of that uh and it's really amazing how just how much they protect and like compared to not having those mangroves there it, it makes a huge huge difference it's it's really impressive and i think like the visual uh aspect of of that uh quite like viral experiment video really shows it because it's it's really impressive uh, I, I wanted to ask something just a little bit more on the uh, physiology part uh, of your research, which is that I guess in, in medicine and, and physiological um, research, as far as I understand, there's there's a lot of difficulty already kind of pointing out causality or, or like connections between factors. Uh, and, you know, and a lot of this like medical research I think is done in as much of a kind of controlled environment as possible. Mm. So I was wondering when you research the physiology or, or like impacts on marine kind of health and things within wilder, I guess, uh, environments and less controlled environments, how do you kind of, um, how do you deal with that idea of, of, of the difficulty of, of uh, finding the link of making sure that change A is caused by change B, you know? Yeah, it is super challenging. <laughs> the first thing you know, <laughs> super challenging conflicts. Um, we tend to use, like, we have two kind of systems for us in, in, in our research group, um, where we have two complex sources beyond the control experiments that we make in the lab. And that is a lot easier because we control all the other conditions and just changing the levels of pH foundation of, of CO2. But on the other side is like uh, we are monitoring an example in the areas of production of shrimps. So mm -hmm. there is a lot of complexity because it is a system that is basically depending on the natural conditions. So the shrimp culture in, here in Ecuador is made for the larval part in laboratories, but it's not laboratories like they are controlling everything. There's basically huge tanks and taking the water from the sea with the variability games from there. They make some treatments, but it's not like purified water. It's just like kind mm -hmm. of just to avoid the, the pathogens and kind of so on, the, the biggest problems that could happen. And then there is a fluctuation in temperature and a bit of salinity. Plus, in our case, for our study, one of the challenges is that to that natural variability, we have to add the variability of the protocols of management and agriculture, because then they start to 
trace the food, they use live phytoplankton and live food also to feed the shrimps that they are culturing and putting some additives to control the chemical conditions. Okay. Uh, basically, what we do is record. We monitor, basically it's monitoring and recording each parameter that is potentially affecting. So an example for pH, we know that is an effect due to injection of CO2. But it's also an effect, I mean, the CO2 due to the fossil fuels and the, in the context of climate change. But it's also a CO2 in that system because it is higher density of animals in the culture that gains for fermentation and the own respiration or the breathing of the animals. So um, for that, we basically make a, a recording and a continuous monitoring. So we are running the two times of monitoring, sorry, two kind of monitoring for that. The one that is at the longer term, so we go each day at one same time, at the same time each day to see how it is fluctuating. And for some days we go on 24 hours to see the daily fluctuation. And that kind of considerations we also take for the wilder environment. So in example, um, what we are, trying to monitor is what is happening in the rocky pools. So we have the intertidal rocky pools, that is basically the rocky pools that are in the, near the, the coastal part. And we go on the low tide and see how it is variating. So in that case, actually our interest was we are not getting, I mean, we are not inducing acidification, but monitoring how is the natural fluctuation of pH. Because in that case, the first part is to understand how the animals there are actually copying or not with a natural variability of pH that we know is high in the rocky pools. And, but actually the, the thing is that what you need is a lot of series of data. So we are monitoring that and still waiting for the processing to have some conclusions. And probably we will not be able to say like, this is exclusively due to no. the pH. But at least we can see a kind of the, the weight of factor, not to say mm -hmm. like the combination of pH and temperature is what is having most of the impact on the state mm -hmm. of health of the physiology of the animal or in the rate of breathing or in behavior. Um, but basically is that for us, the approach is like long-term monitoring, a continuous monitoring and recording all data that we cannot manipulate or control like in an experimental system. On the other hand, what is true is like this is supposed to be more impactful information because that is actually what is happening. And what we have in the lab, it is like complementary information, but it's hard to then extrapolate to see like, okay, if I see an example, if I see that the pH internal in the animal is changing when I expose them in ocean acidification, it is hard to know if that could be happening if there is also having ocean acidification and warming. Because maybe there is some compensation, physiological compensation on the animal that could function in different way when you have the other factors. So the idea is to have this approach complementary and know what is related to ocean acidification. And by comparing with what is happening in the wild, it's kind of not totally a subtraction, but at least a comparing that this mm -hmm. factor alone and multiple factors, how they are affecting. Yeah. On a question more focused on sort of 
the scientific community in general, I really like to learn more about your experiences in your roles, such as the co-founder and co-coordinator of the Ecuadorian Network of, of Women in Science and the president of the Organization for Women in Science for the Developing uh, World as well. Uh, and those, with uh, just so the listeners know, they, they broadly have the mission of engaging and promoting equity for the participation of women in science. And I just... That seems like a really big challenge. And I just really like, <laughs> I, I just guess I'd like to know the process um, really of how you sort of reach out and provide these opportunities. Yeah, well, actually there was a kind of process that was developing being inside. Uh, for me, it was totally, uh, I mean, we know there is inequality and gender inequality and there is a world community that recognizes there is a lack of diversity, the human diversity in science. Uh, still, uh, the level that we found in developing countries, and particular, particularly what I found in Ecuador, was uh, a bit striking at the beginning. When I came back, I was living about the years a little bit more, and between Spain and France, and a bit in the UK, and mostly in the European frame. So the challenges were different. Uh, here, an example I still found when I just arrived, like uh, people ignoring me in the presence when they are giving my professional opinion, mm -hmm. and just on the grounds um, of how they look at me. I mean, it's like, so they were assuming that maybe because it, uh, I'm a woman, also there was a lot on the things of the age they perceive you. So it was the younger people, women, <laughs> and other minorities. It's not like heard in the same way that the other people that the mainstream, you know? especially here was, what I was observing, it was more dominating for uh, all male. It was basically the most of professors at the universities, most of researchers. Um, most of authorities and academic authorities were basically like you can see the pictures and it is like full of men mm -hmm. over 50s or 60s or even more. And that was like, uh, yes, I was like, I mean, I have been a Latina in Europe and there was some challenges on that, but that was totally another thing. It was not a thing in that case because of the, of the ethnic origin, but on the gender way. And what I found it was a lot of other colleagues that were noticing and leading that. Uh, several of us were just developing our scientific career abroad and came back and found that kind of, I mean, on top of the natural hardness that has to do science in general in the world, I mean, the scientific career is a tough part. We know that. But on top of that was this other kind of limitations. So we start together um, with each other. Basically, it was to social networks. Actually, it was via Twitter for the first uh, formal contact. And it was a colleague, she's Ecuadorian, and she's doing her uh, postgraduate studies in Germany. But she's keeping the track here and what is happening in Ecuador. So it was like just on the first year that I came back, um, she's also working in climate change in the area of politics for climate change. And we were connected for the topic, you know, I was an ocean acidification in biology, she was in the politics, but the common topic was climate change. But then we stopped, start to see that is that the challenge was not only to place in the gender climate change, but on the thing that the scientists that were proposing that topic, the P 
people that was interested became for a group that is not uh, given too much attention. So basically, they were not hearing us, and our message was important, but we were not perceived as the right messenger for that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah. we we'll start to connect and see if there is other people happening that. And one of the things we notice is a lot of people don't want to talk about that because also have this backlash. So they are just copying sorry. with that. Side. Sorry, because because what? Sorry, I couldn't hear you very well. And the backlash. Because oh, the backlash. Okay, yeah. When you say, yes, this is, there is a problem and you are having mm -hmm. gender issues, then it's becoming even worse for the people that is raising the voice. Mm -hmm. So uh, we start to say, okay, but we can start to create a network. The first was to create a group. We were not thinking really anything. First, there was about idea of built um, a network, but a community. So start to connect with female colleagues mainly um, that were doing science in Ecuador and notice that yes, there is there are some problems of gender equity. There is also a lot in the ethnic minorities. Ecuador is a country um, that has Afro-descendants, Black people here, and also indigenous from the original people here, that should be altogether maybe about a 10 to 20% of the population. Still, they are really underrepresented in the scientific field, meaning like less than one, 5%, depending on the area. So it is not just that they are a minority in the population, but even on that proportion, they are underrepresented. So that was another thing that we were noticing and trying to, to raise the voices for that. Like, um, we need to make more visible there is women doing science in the country. They are doing good science. And the other thing that I found particularly for me that was motivating is to highlight the point that a better science needs for more diverse points of view. Mm -hmm. Because your background also allows you to see yeah. other things, have another approach, other perspectives, to understand from another way that happened. And that is the mm -hmm. other thing, because we know that sometimes people forget that one thing is the data we obtain in science, but it is also a factor of the interpretation we do of mm -hmm. that data. And that interpretation is clearly linked to our background, to our history, to our training. Yeah. So that was like better science with wider perspectives. Of course. And yes, at the beginning it was a little bit uh, hard because some people even was denying, like, no, there was a problem of the past century, but now we are living in a happy, equal society. And we say, like, no, not really. Maybe it's because you are on the other side of the population yeah. that is not having the problem. But the other part, yes, we are living the problem. And um, But at the end, it has been like, uh, people in recognizing, we start to also bring initiatives from other parts. I think a key point is like several of us came from other, uh, from trainings in other countries that it is more openly talk about the need of, of equality. And if, even you have policies, like public policies talking about that. Here was kind mm -hmm. of taboo, like, no, we don't, it's like if you don't talk about it, that is not happening. Yeah. So, so you, know, you need to talk about it so that it stops happening. And well, I think we have advanced. And the next thing for us, that was especially for the, the RENSI, that is the Network of Women in Science. And then it was also for us important to connect with other 
networking communities of women in science, and we have been an example. There has been a, a rise in, in Latin America of other networks and other kind of collectives and groups that are working in these aspects. Also rising an example, uh, the role of parenthood uh, in science. That is another kind of, another branch that sometimes we collaborate. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was the internationalization. It is, um, Ecuador, I, I can say like when I left Ecuador in 2006 for the first time, it was mainly because I want to learn more, but also because there was no opportunities to learn about living here in the country. So I was basically forced to go abroad to study my, my, my PhD. At that point, mm-hmm. even there were no programs of postgraduate level on that area. So it was simply, mm-hmm. there's no option. Mm-hmm. Now there are some, there have been some advances in the country for that, but this is still, we are in the part of um, most of the science is expected to be like directly applied for production. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that is also that I like you have to build first the knowledge and then to use it. Not on the opposite way, but it's, I mean, it's, it's a kind of ongoing processes in a situation that is still on development, on the advancement of science. And for me, mm-hmm. like, is what I believe is like science is a need for development, and to advance science, there is a need to help all the people involved. That includes women and minorities. Mm-hmm. And what a friend always uh, highlights is like, yes, and just to highlight that we women are not minority, we're half of the population. So that is the other thing that is, we have to come with everyone. Mm-hmm. And for the OS, um, the Organization for Women in Science for the Developing World, it was the next, uh, I think the next natural step that was to promote also mm-hmm. internationalization. Exactly because you have to go abroad, but my my idea is uh, my perspective on, on that the, the mission is more like if you want to get a training abroad because internationalization is important and you want to learn from other cultures and other perspectives, it's great and you should have that opportunity. But that shouldn't be the only option you have. That was <laughs> happening with several of us. Like you go abroad, not only because we love traveling, which actually I love, <laughs> but still, it was a lot because it was the option. It was the only way. So mm-hmm. I went for that. So the things like that, and also for the people that want to come back to make science in Ecuador, to have the conditions to do that. Because also we have a lot of people that go and get the training abroad, but it's not possible to come back, not because they don't want to contribute to the country, but because there is not sufficient conditions to make the science they have learned and been trained to be applied here locally. So that yeah. should be a kind of internationalization. If you want to go because you wish, great. And if you want to come back because you wish, that mm-hmm. should be also the, the option. Mm-hmm. And basically that is the, the process. Where still is an ongoing process. We have made some advancements, a lot to do yet. But yes, I think we, we have later a nice community that is really willing to work for that and going for it. Yeah, and I guess, I guess one of the things that I was thinking about is the the issue of like brain drain uh, from Global South and how like it's interesting. I find it interesting that a lot of the researchers uh, that I see going from Global South to elsewhere often go to global north kind of like you you mentioned and and i guess it would be yeah i I kind of 
wish in the future to see more of that like global south global south kind of um working together and like trying to kind of bridge uh create bridges between these countries and these these environments that you know that wouldn't then contribute in a way to a kind of global brain drain from south to north but rather like i guess uh contribute to to um yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. i i got idea um yeah actually there is a lot on the, the thing of the the old vision the old is trying to to explain the yeah the cooperation and the soul soul and there is a lot of reasons that we see it is kind of good also in the strategic point of view um, because there is also a lot of more similarities that sometimes could make easier for the people. I mean, what happens sometimes is that some people came from some countries that have been, an example, the technological and scientific lag of countries, and they arrive to the, they got some scholarship and go to the global north to some top university, and there is a lot of the cultural shock. Not only mm. because of the language or the other things, but also because of the access that you suddenly have to some things that you even sometimes even didn't know about it. So an example, equipment or technologies that you were not able to access in, in your place. And sometimes that is make very difficult for them to, to develop their research because there is also the human part of this course yeah. struggling on that so um the idea and the some clients and the cooperation so so sometimes you have um some even cultural things that are closer uh, sometimes not necessarily because sometimes they say it's, it's from the latino community but not only for that in example i have been in contact with people from india and we have very friends good friends there and we found in common that for us the food culture is very important and our cultures, like the gathering for taking food and sharing with family and friends, is like like really core. So, mm -hmm. and it's a, a very more intimate way, maybe, than in another place. Mm -hmm. And you know, like Ecuador and India are quite far. <laughs> we are basically point to point to the <laughs> planet. And and that was like wow. And um, that kind of thing, like you can only see if, if there is more more mix. As you say, it's like not only from mm -hmm. south to north, but a kind of really more integrated way mm -hmm. uh, the other thing like we saw and that is more from the scientific point of view an example for ocean acidification uh, there have been a lot of promoting the mentoring but it's mostly from the north to south from global ones but well an example what we were planting is like maybe in the global south we don't we have the same limitations of technology but on the other hand we have a lot of ecological similarities because, in example, for the equatorial areas, we have very similar ecosystems. I mean, a mangrove ecosystem here could be functionally and ecologically comparable to a mangrove in the other part of the Pacific and the Western Pacific, an example. Mm -hmm. That cannot be compared with the ecosystems they have in the fjords in Chile. Even if we are global south and we are Latinos, that is not depending on that. Uh, yeah. The biological part is another one. Mm -hmm. So it should be more relevant on the scientific part, a global, um, global collaboration 
and the equatorial global to say somehow that is because we have more ecological similarities and that is the right. kind of perspective we had in rising like you know go beyond the, the geopolitical connections and the more mm-hmm. biological ecological connection the power of yeah. and that could be more relevant for us scientific collaboration yeah yeah i see that that, that makes a lot of sense um I mean, I, I I hope that you know the sort of thing does come to pass because it, it makes sense and and I don't know if it's being done, but it should. It sounds like it should be. Uh, I want to very very quickly ask you about a final a small thing before we kind of start to wrap up, uh, which was the World Ocean Assessment too that you worked on, um, which was the the chapter nine pressures from changes in climate and atmosphere. Uh, I was wondering what your experience was working on this UN assessment and kind of what the general um, findings, uh, I guess, or, or I don't know exactly what part that you worked on uh, on that, but I was wondering what your contribution was and what, what the general report findings were. And, and uh, knowing this came out in 2021, I think, so so it's quite recent. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, that assessments are made each four to five years. Uh, on the one part of the experience was really interesting because it's really international approach. This is gathered and coordinated by the United Nations as part of the general process. So it is literally, basically, all signing nations of the all signed countries and the United Nations mm-hmm. are part of the process. Um, Normally, they delegate scientists, which was nice because sometimes in this conversation, as in the COPs, sometimes they delegate people that is more in the politics and not so much on the science or the biological part. And it's kind of unfortunate because it's a political part taking decisions that should be made in another, I mean, with more evidences. But in this case, it was like, yes, basically, the scientists, um, the other thing of the process that I think is important to highlight, it is not only that is um, a very diverse and international community of scientists from different areas of science, including biological, chemical, physical, and also humanities and public policies too, in that kind of a research field. But also that is a process that involves, after that part, uh, it has involved a reviewing process by scientific partners, but also by delegates of the countries. So it's kind of very participative document that is revised um, on different levels. So we agree as a scientific community, but also there is an agreement by the nations to that going out. So the countries can say, no, they are saying something that is too drastic for what we think, but no, it's like really integrative. And the main thing it was, yes, summarizing in the super short is like, we have been facing and we have already impacts that are measured or are quantifiable related to climate change and, come on, and how it, is that affecting the ocean and it's climate change and especially fisheries, um, illegal fisheries and other related problems to that, the overfishing that is affecting mostly the health of the ocean. And these are interacting factors that we cannot take separately, but we have to to understand and study them together to make measurements that are really effective. And the other thing was, despite we are affected by now, we're still in time to make changes 
that avoid a bigger problem. I mean, a really unreversible. There's some that is unreversible things that is kind of the minimal part. Most of them could be reverted, repaired, restored. But the thing is that we have to do that and going for the goal before the 2030. And the thing is that beyond that, it doesn't mean that we cannot do anything, but that we will be losing more. With educate, we yeah. wait for taking measurements. We are still losing more things in an irreparable way. Mm -hmm. And my role in that was uh, on that same line, particularly for that chapter, we were trying to highlight the physical and chemical problems on climate, climate change for the ocean and water and the species that live in there, but also the needs of capacity building in a global way. And that is taking back on the way we were talking before about the resolution. Uh, we need to take measurements that are based in evidence, but if the evidence and the studies are very scarce in the global south and the equatorial areas, where is the most of the life, diversity, and food production for fisheries and aquaculture in the global world, mm -hmm. we are not really being able to make good measurements. I mean, it's like we are knowing perfectly, I say it's almost at the millimeter, actually at the kilometer level of resolution for the global north and knowing almost nothing from the other part of the mm -hmm. world where it's actually producing most of the food and it's having the hot spots of biodiversity. So it was rising like, which initiatives have been on capacity building? There have been some, but there is that we need to accelerate more on that part. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that to highlight and just to close up the, the idea is because what we face in the climate change research with frequent seen and when we go to international events, conferences and so on, you found that the rising and development of technology for some rich countries is like going, and that is it's not a criticism. I mean, it is it's nice and it's good to have that kind of resolution and technology, having more precision and so on. But it's not going to be so helpful to take decisions for the world if compared to that, that we know, like really to nine levels of to nine decimals on the numbers of the data. And we don't have data for the other part. So it was like kind of measurement where we have to do investments to refine super high the technology we already have, or to increase the access to technology, functional technology to the whole world. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. basically that was the my role and the message for the, the world too. No, no, that's a wonderfully impactful and I think uh, very relevant uh addition to to that report for sure it's it's something that yeah that that alongside uh, i just wanted to know that yeah the what you said about the organization for women uh as well and how how that is it, how long it takes for people to realize that those things are a problem uh or i guess there's like the different stages of like denial and then <laughs> excuse and then you know all of those the different stages um but yeah, I, it's even when we do research for the podcast and when we when we seek out guests, uh, it's just so obvious to to me when I I look around. Sometimes I I go to specific university websites and I look for staff, you know, and and I look through people's yeah. stuff and I and I look at what I think 
could be interesting for an episode or what interests me personally, or what I think Jamie might might like sometimes. Sometimes I think about sometimes, Jamie. Yeah. <laughs> this time, this time. This time. <laughs> uh, and every single time, my goodness, it is so obvious that there's a lack of both women and um and people from the global south in general, and also women from the global south. Uh, I mean, we. I remember doing. I think I should do another one, but we we did a year and a half ago. I think for the one year kind of the podcast, we did a little self audit of uh, the amount of episodes that we had done with, because you know each episode is done with one guest. I I kind of yeah. went through all of our episodes and I was like, okay, how many women have we had on the podcast? How many non-binary people? How many men? How many people from Global North, Global South, et cetera, et cetera? And and I did all of that kind of um analytics and you know we were i think <laughs> i don't know we we tried so i think it was okay it wasn't amazing and we've kind of tried to take steps quite concrete steps to, to fix that ourselves uh even though you know we're just a podcast but but i guess if we can do it why can't the bigger <laughs> institutions do yeah. it you know um but it's always good to to I think strive for that goal with that in mind of like it is so important to bring in like you said different perspectives but also that very necessary data um, that like it's not only inherently right but it's also useful like you said I, I find I find it so baffling yeah. that institutions <laughs> take so long to, to understand both of those points uh, they should read your report that's for sure um all right i think we're going to wrap it up here because we've we've taken a lot of your time already um and before we wrap up completely i do want to give a big shout out to the global south climate database actually uh kind of a bit linked uh which was uh, created i believe by carbon brief and uh raiders institute uh and yes so shout out to aisha tandon and um and Diego Arguedas Ortiz, because both of them kind of posted about this Global South Climate Database, and it's how we found Pat here with us. Uh, and so, so that was a wonderful tool to find if you're looking for any kind of Global South scientist that might be working on climate research or climate-related things. You can head to Global South Climate Database on carbonbrief.org, and there's a wonderful kind of software where you can look up either uh, by country, by name, or by uh, type of research, by a theme, field, etc. So thank you to them for for um, for doing the work. And uh, thank you so much, Patricia, for, for coming on the show and for, for doing the work that you do. And we wish you the best in continuing that work. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. I really enjoy and and actually it is really, really nice format. I just want to highlight and actually thank you for what you say, the, the analysis you have made to make the balance on gender, the balance on the diversity and representation in the podcast. I mean, equality and diversity is made one podcast at a time. <laughs> so it is pretty nice you're doing and taking in a comment. I'll, I'll put that as a little <laughs> tagline, one podcast at a time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much.